Subliminal SF brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Oh, happy hour. What could be happier than 23 comics doing jokes for each other and at a radio listening audience? Puppets, kittens, unicorns, porn maybe? Oh, well, stage time makes them happy, and this super happy comedy open mic is open every Friday from 6 to 8 p.m., but you can also listen anytime by downloading the podcast at Mutiny Radio FM Index at podcasts.pcrcollective.org. So come live or listen later or to every happy hour mic Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. at Radio FL Mutiny Radio. I just fucked that up again. What the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah, I got it. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! capaz de ganar a la gente, de despertar emociones en la gente y que a la vez forma parte de, de todo un sentimiento general del mundo.
morning, mutineers. Good morning, labor and lovers. This is the B. And the sky is crying today because we have lost a great figure in the struggle for social justice all over the world. Viva Fidel. Elmer, Elmer James there uh, playing uh, the saddest song I know The Sky is Crying Baby One of the real culture landmarks of Fidel Castro and his movement in Cuba with this song, which sort of became a national anthem of a certain group of people, a certain part of my generation. Uh, let's play that for you. The song, of course, is one time. Pardon me. <laughs> so this song is sung by 75 Cubanos all over the world, 75 
Guantanamera Yo soy un hombre sincero ¿De dónde crece la palma? Yo soy un hombre sincero ¿De dónde crece la palma? Y antes de morir me quiero Echar mis versos del alma
a stirring rendition there of Guantanamera. Uh, uh, the video shows a series of people from Cuba all who uh, are all over the world singing Guantanamera all together. Uh, excellent, very stirring. So, uh, yeah, Fidel is dead. Fidel was uh, a law student. He was born in 1926. Uh, his father had become successful by growing sugar cane. And uh, Fidel was born of the union with him and his household servant, uh, his second wife. They had seven children together, and one of them was Fidel. And uh, Fidel started studying law in 1940, 1945. Uh, passionate about anti-imperialism and opposing U.S. intervention in the Caribbean, he unsuccessfully campaigned for the presidency of the Students' Union. joined the party of the Cuban people, founded by veteran politician Eduardo Chivas. Chivas advocated social justice, honest government, and political freedom, while his party exposed corruption and demanded reform. Though Chivas lost the election, Castro had remained committed to working on his behalf. Uh, he was thrown in jail several times for political activity. And he wrote this about Marxism. Marxism taught me what society was. I was like a blindfolded man in a forest who doesn't even know where north and, or south is. If you don't eventually come to truly understand the idea of the class struggle, or at least have a clear idea that society is divided, between the rich and the poor, and that some people subjugate and exploit other people, you're lost in a forest. You don't know anything. And the story is legend, how uh, Fidel and 165 people um, started a movement against Batista. Batista, who was a tool of uh, the U.S. government and U.S. Uh, financial interests, including the Mafia. Go check out The Godfather. It's all in there. Um, Castro was arrested, thrown in jail, pardoned by Batista. Castro and Raul, his brother, fled the country to, to evade arrest. And they took up arms in the Sierra Maestra Mountains. And uh, for two years, they attacked military outposts. More and more people, such as the doctor Ernesto Guevara from Argentina, joined them. Well, the rest is, is history, um, and of course in 
Havana, Cuba. People were very upset and sad that he had passed. While in Miami, there were some celebrations. This was the people, the class of people who fled Cuba. Okay, in 19, because of things like this. In 1959, he signed into law the first agrarian reform, setting a cap for land holdings to 993 acres per owner and prohibiting foreigners from obtaining Cuban land ownership. Around 200,000 peasants received little title deeds as part as large land holdings were broken up. Popular among the working class, it alienated rich landowners. Uh, remember 1962 Bay of Pigs, the United States um, sends a puppet force to invade Cuba because Fidel had declared himself a Marxist-Leninist and started making... Uh, overtures to um, the Soviet Union. Castro used radio and television to develop a dialogue with the people, posing questions and making provocative statements. His regime remained popular with workers, peasants, and students who constituted the majority of the country's population. While opposition came primarily from the middle class, thousands of doctors, engineers, and other professionals emigrated to Florida. Productivity decreased and the country's financial reserves were drained within two years. Pro Castro Printer's trade union disrupted the editorial staff of conservative newspapers and in January 1960 they, they ordered them to publish a clarification to end articles critical to the government. So 1962 famous trip to the General Assembly he ended up staying in a hotel in Harlem met with Malcolm X and uh, other leaders, quote-unquote. And then the Bay of Pigs, 1961. The United States puppet force staged an invasion of Cuba. It was quickly crushed, but after that, 30 or 40 different plots were hatched to kill Castro. Talk a little bit more about after the Bay of Pigs next week. Read a couple of articles about Fidel, and I want to read one about Castro and sports. Fidel, um, in an unexpected late-night broadcast on state TV that Fidel Castro had died and would be cremated later on Saturday. Throughout the Cold War, Fidel Castro was a thorn in Washington's side. 
He and his small army of guerrillas overthrew the military leader Fulgencio Batista in 1959 to widespread popular support. Cuba managed to maintain a communist revolution in a nation just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. Despised by his critics as much as he was revered by his followers, he maintained his rule through 10 U.S. presidents and survived scores of attempts on his life <coughs> by the CIA. He established a one-party state and executed hundreds of followers. Okay, uh, talk a little more later about Miguel Castro, a giant in quest for social justice. Next. 
Cause the white man's got a God complex. Hey, my man, uh, I wanna cop a nickel bag. Uh, you say all oh, you got is skag. Wow, that's a drag. Cause uh, I don't wanna cop no dope is death. Next cause the white man's got a God complex. Hey, baby, what's the gig at tonight? Well, there's one over at Slicks for faggots and tricks. There's one around graveyard side of town that'll cost you a pound. But if you go and know what I know, you better pack your piece at least or you'll die next. Cause the white man's got a God complex. Mr. Stein, I done paid enough rent for this pad to be mine. But you just want to cheat me because I ain't your kind. Damn, can't you see the place is falling down? No, you can't dig it because you ain't never around. Damn, I'm so poor, I don't know what in the hell I'm gonna do anymore Not from this day to the next Cause the white man's got a God complex I'm making guns I'm God I'm God, God. I'm making bombs I'm God I'm making gas I'm God I'm making freak machines I'm God Rife control pills I'm God Kill Indians who discovered him I'm God Kill Japanese with the A-bomb I'm God Kill the still killing black people I'm God Drop it off the ground.
That was the uh, the clash. Someone got murdered out in the street, sitting in their car. What's going on? Before that, White Man's Got a God Complex by uh, The Last Poets, kind of uh, proto-rappers, although more, uh, I'd say more on the poetry side than the rap side, but that's what it developed into. Okay, this is The B, and you're listening to Labor and Love, the show where we tell you how it is that if uh, one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person worked for a dollar they didn't get. And if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, you're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your house who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. We started out today celebrating the life of Fidel Castro and mourning his follow his passing. And I want to also pay homage to another figure music figure who we lost and that's Mose Allison we played a couple of Moses songs uh, last week it's one called The Seventh Son Mose Allison Okay, Mose Allison's going to have to come up afterward. We're going to talk a little now about Fidel Castro and some of his work. And this report is by a sports writer named Dick Schapp. And Schapp is talking about the way Castro used sports. Castro himself was a left-handed pitcher... And uh, one American ball player, Don Hoke, told about going to play ball in the winter, Cuban winter ball. Uh, a lot of players did that to in, to make a little extra money or to help hone their skills. A lot of excellent players played in that league. But one night, Don Hoke, who played for the uh, Cincinnati Reds and the Pittsburgh Pirates in the U.S., uh, came up to hit. And Fidel Castro was there with a group of students, and the students disrupted the game, and Fidel himself went out to the mound to pitch and uh, broke off what Don Hoke called a major league curveball. So Fidel was uh, quite a bit about athletics. Let's see if we can get it up here.
Okay. Fidel coming right up. Fidel Castro on sports. Yeah, what's happening? Here we go. A revolutionary turned dictator. Okay. Here we go. Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro will be remembered as the last of the 20th century strongmen, a relentless antagonist of the United States, a revolutionary turned dictator, a savior and a scourge. On one point, however, both ESPN. his and his critics must agree. Castro loves sports the way he loved his cohibas. Even as his rivalry with his powerful neighbor 90 miles across the Straits of Florida played out in diplomatic and military crises, it also played out on baseball fields, in boxing rings, and on rubberized tracks. Castro himself was frequently photographed in baseball flannels, El Comandante on the mound. A myth was born that before the revolution, he tried out for the Washington Senators, if only Castro had signed with the senators, the story goes, Cuban capitalism would never have been vanquished. But no such tryout ever took place, and Castro himself denied that he was a talent in the tradition of Cuban pitching legends such as Dolph Luque and Louis Tiant. They said that I was a pitcher with an excellent uh, curve and that there were some scouts that wanted to contract me and that I had been offered $5,000 and that I did not accept. My curve could have been dangerous because it might have hit somebody. <laughs> Soon after assuming power, Castro recognized the potential benefits of national excellence in athletics and Cuba eventually became one of the strongest sporting nations in the world, despite a population only slightly greater than New York City's. At the Olympics, Castro's athletes were at their best. Cuba won no gold medals at any games from 1906 to 1968, but all of that in 1972. In Munich, then in Montreal, and then in Moscow, games the US boycotted, Cuba was an Olympic force. Most impressive, heavyweight boxer Teofilo Stevenson won three consecutive gold medals. There it is! And Alberto Wantarena became the first man to win both 100 and 800 meters. Well, I can just imagine the reaction in the streets of Havana. Cuba was back in the international one as the host of the Pan Am Games, which, more than any athlete, Dominated. He seemed to be at every venue, cheering every heat and every Cuban athlete. The following year, Cuba returned to the Olympic fold, just in time to win the first ever Olympic baseball championship, defeating the U.S., the lighting Castro. Soon thereafter, many of its top players started defecting to play in the United States, where instead of earning the equivalent of $1,000 a year, they could, like Orlando Hernandez and Jose Contreras, sign contracts worth tens of millions of dollars. But over the years, sport has occasionally provided opportunities for Cuban-American detente, 
1999, for example, over strenuous objections from the Cuban emigre community in Florida, the Baltimore Orioles played two games against the Cuban national team. And he's got another one. And the ball game is over. In late 2014, President Obama and Cuban President Raul Castro, Fidel's younger brother, announced a restoration of diplomatic ties between the countries. Fifteen months later, with Obama sitting alongside Raul, the Tampa Bay Rays played a game in Havana against the Cuban national team. Just James Loney sends one to right field, and that one is going to go. That push to normalizing relations, combined with Castro's death, could mean that Cuba's most gifted athletes will no longer have to leave behind their families to seek wealth and opportunity. They may no longer have to choose between home and freedom. The impact of Castro's death on the world of sport might be relatively inconsequential, and things might not change. But one question lingers. How different would our world be if there had been bite to Castro's curveball? Okay, that was, like I said, that's uh, Dick Schapp, a sports writer, talking about uh, Fidel Castro. Let's listen to our labor reports now. Uh, still trying to get uh, Mose Allison up here. So let's listen to our labor report. First, the world labor situation on let's see okay we'll start here with when we can review last couple of they told me this is a mind and a life altering trip for them they are going to remember this trip for the rest of their lives they would not be surprised if this is an incredibly bonding trip for them. Just being Workers able to get news, life experience in a Doug place Cunningham. that has always been so The federal appeals so court in Kentucky has upheld local county anti-union laws known as right to work. That ruling reverses a lower court decision that had the anti-union law. Kentucky AFL-CIO President Bill Londrigan says unions will likely appeal to the full federal appeals court and if they lose there, it's on to the U.S. Supreme Court. The right-to-work laws are designed to weaken unions by letting workers covered by union contracts skip paying dues. For WIN, I'm Joanne Powers. Late Tuesday evening, a federal judge in Texas put a stop to new rules planned for December 1st that would extend overtime protections to an estimated 4.5 million workers and strengthen enforcement for millions more. Judy Conti, federal advocacy coordinator for the National Employment Law Project, described the ruling as extreme. Essentially, invalidating this rule is telling employers that you can work your employees more hours for less money. The judge is going back to what he thinks is clear language in the 1938 statute, but he has ignored the entirety of the history of regulating in this and the fact that the congressional amendments in 1961 essentially ratified both a salary and a duty basis test. 
So we think that the decision is clearly far outside of the bounds of legal precedent and congressional intent. On Tuesday, 95,000 California nurses, teachers, and other state workers voted overwhelmingly, 92 percent, to authorize a strike on December 5th to protest what they describe as the state's unlawful conduct and bad faith bargaining. Service Employees International Union Local 1000 Vice President Margarita Maldonado. They've bargained regressively. It's absolutely unacceptable. Also, they have had an illegal policy in the way that they threaten our members with discipline for participating in protected activity. Obviously, the strike vote that we had signaled to us very overwhelmingly that they are demanding that the state respect the bargaining process and that it's our responsibility as a union to hold them accountable for this unlawful conduct. Workers' groups are planning Black Friday labor actions in major cities across the country to protest the mass marketing of products that fail to respect workers on a global scale. Rochelle LaForest is director of the Retail Action Project and Department Store Union in New York. The scramble to consume more things we already feel is problematic, but the kinds of worker abuses that we also see, discrimination based on race, age, and gender, sexual identity, not to mention the way that the environment is ravaged through the mass production of all these items of clothing and toys, and all of this tied up in a neat little bow, this very low-wage economic race to the bottom. Workers' independent news provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug Cunningham. Okay, that was the uh, WIN report, Workers' Independent News. Now we're going to see about uh, the Radio Labor World Report. Remember, you're never alone when you stand up and resist. Every day, there are labor actions, hundreds going on all over the world. Every day celebrates the anniversary of labor actions, somewhere, sometime, by someone. Here's Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, November 25th, 2016. I'm Mark Belanger. Labor organizations around the world are re-energizing their efforts to stop violence in the workplace with a special focus on violence against women. November 25th is the United Nations Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. I talked to Chitty King about the labor movement's efforts to eliminate incidents of violence. Ms. King is the director of the Equality Department of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the global organization which represents national union centers such as the AFL-CIO in the United States and the Ghana Trades Union Congress. I asked Ms. King first if there were particular forms of violence against women the ITUC was most concerned about. Well, I think we're concerned about all forms of violence against women, really, which can take many shapes, whether it's physical abuse, including assault, battery, attempted murder, sexual violence, including rape and sexual assault, you know, verbal abuse, bullying, psychological abuse, intimidation, sexual harassment, stalking, threats of violence. I mean, the list is quite long. And, you know, whilst there's some extreme forms of violence, which we can all easily recognize and say, you know, this is unacceptable, it needs to be stopped. 
other seemingly minor forms of intimidation and harassment and coercion sometimes take place over extensive periods of time and can have devastating effects. And we've seen some of these even leading up to acts of suicide. So I think our objective is really zero tolerance on all forms of violence um, against women in the workplace, recognizing, of course, that different measures um, need to be applied according to the severity of the violence that we're talking about. But prevention is what we're aiming about at its and zero tolerance. Are there indications that violence against women is decreasing or is it on the rise? Well, I'm not sure there's been a lot of empirical research um, on this where the workplace certainly is concerned. And this is something that the ITUC and affiliates and allies are looking to remedy. But all the anecdotal evidence that we have suggests that it is on the rise. And this has to do not only with the fact that we have more women than ever um, in the workforce um, today, and therefore, of course, a corresponding um, increase in that numerical sense, but it's also to do with the fact that the world of work is changing dramatically. When you look at where women are positioned in the workplace, it's usually, you know, not exclusively, but too often in forms of work which are precarious or informal, where there is little or no union organizing, and in fact, sometimes organization um, by trade unions is actively discouraged through threats and violence. It's where women have little autonomy or voice um, in the workplace, and therefore are more exposed um, to forms of violence. So we're certainly seeing that. It's also to do with the way that work is arranged um, today, which can lead to stress factors, um, which we call, you know, very often psychological abuse and violence. But it is. It's, for example, very, very long working hours um, without proper breaks. It's, you know, looking at um, work that is not properly protected in terms of health and safety, which can lead to serious injuries, or even a workplace stress that, if not encourages, certainly provokes violence on the part of colleagues. In many countries these days, being a working journalist can be very dangerous. The International Federation of Journalists has recorded the killing of 74 journalists since the start of 2016. Some of those killings were in war zones such as Afghanistan or Yemen. But 21 journalists were killed in countries like Mexico and India where they were exposing crime and abuse of power. Many more journalists around the world have been harassed and attacked as they try to do their job. The country attracting most attention these days for its abysmal treatment of journalists is Turkey. Following an attempted coup in July, the Turkish government has been arresting, harassing and forcing media outlets to fire journalists. I talked to the president of the IFJ, Philippe Lerout, and asked him about the situation in Turkey. The situation for journalists is worse than ever in Turkey. At present, some uh, 107 journalists are jailed, but several hundreds are indicted, and uh, almost 2,500 journalists were dismissed. And uh, they are accused all of being a member of an armed organization or for aiding an illegal organization and so on, uh, uh, accused of uh, being a couple of the, the attempt coup, which is, uh, of course, unacceptable. Why is the government of Turkey attacking journalists in the country? Ah, that, I, I, tell, I tell you, it's, a, it's already a long story. You know, back 
five, six years ago, the Turkish government was harassing leftist journalists, was harassing Kurdish journalists, and also what they in uh, Turkey name Kemalist journalists, which means nationalist journalists. Those journalists represented groups opposed to the AKP government. Now they have turned to to uh, so-called Gulenist journalists as a consequence. The only remaining journalists are either supporters of the government or really independent journalists, but which uh, respect a great self-censorship because they, they fear for the liberty, which means there is no more dissenting voice in the Turkish press or, or hardly any dissenting voice. And this is, of course, a way for the Turkish authorities to silence any critics. There have been rumors that the Turkish government has been harassing the families of journalists. Have you heard of this? We faced this situation already in the past. When uh, you have a, a jailed or a dismissed journalist or an addicted journalist, if the wife or the man of this journalist has no work, the family is without re any resources and they face very difficult situation. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the more than 2,400 stories our volunteers collected in the past week. Our top stories section included links to news about the marking of today, the global day for the elimination of violence against women by unions around the world, a report on the suppression of labor rights in Kazakhstan, union protests on the eve of the Romanian election, and today's planned protest march and 12-hour general strike in the Bahamas. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Education workers in Gabon closed schools in a fight over education funding. Chilean public sector workers continued their rotating strikes this week. Venezuelan miners downed tools to demand compliance with agreements. Political staff of a state government in India all took leave to press their bargaining demands. Canadian transport workers won a victory in their strike, while child protection workers in the same country continued their 10-week-long strike over worker safety issues. In Burkina Faso, healthcare workers stepped up their wage dispute with a walkout. There was a three-day general strike supported by most unions in Algeria over government fiscal policies. Nigerian tertiary education workers took a day off work to protest management corruption. In Germany, air transport workers caused the cancellation of hundreds of flights. And in Trinidad and Tobago, offshore oil workers continued their wage strike. Our top working women stories included coverage of the call for a national referendum on abortion rights by Irish unions, a new law making it easier for unions to negotiate pay equity in New Zealand, and the successes Indian unions have had in bargaining for we run in cooperation with Hazards Magazine, carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about the deaths of construction workers in Cuba and China, and why Australian unions are treating domestic violence as a workplace issue. Currently, Labour Start is running seven online actions. 
Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. wanted to play one more uh, news item here. This is about our president-elect. Uh, and how he's dealing with uh, la- his own labor problems. Welcome back. You're listening to Labor's... John Hare, pinch hitting today for Charles Showalter, our, our founder and host. And uh, you can listen to us on 27 radio stations around the country, or you can listen live or podcast later at theunionedge.com. That's theunionedge.com. Well, T minus four for the election. And who better to talk about developments in Washington than our friends at Politico? And today there's a very interesting article written by our guest, Kogan Schneer. It's called Labor Board, Trump Hotel Violated Labor Law. Hi, Kogan. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So uh, what's going on with this Labor Board decision? Yes. So the National Labor Relations Board, um, which is the federal agency that enforces the nation's labor law, uh, made a ruling yesterday that said that the Trump International Hotel had violated the law by refusing to bargain uh, with elected union representatives. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the Culinary Union Local 226, which is an affiliate of Unite here. It's a huge affiliate out in Las Vegas. So uh, the Labor Board says uh, you violated the law. And yes. What's the, what's the history here with this? Uh... Yeah, so this actually, uh, the union has kind of a tangled history um, with the hotel. They started organizing about two years ago, and um, in December of 2015, so about uh, almost a year ago, they voted to join the union. And then a couple months later in March 2016, um, a uh, regional labor board director said that they uh certified their election and said, okay, you're good to go, go ahead, bargain. Um, and the international, the Trump International Hotel appealed that to the, the full board, um, the national board. Um, and the full board said, no, it's fine, go ahead, you know, bargain. Um, but the Trump International Hotel has since refused to bargain with the union, even though it's been recognized. Um, so it's kind of been a long process. And even over the summer, there were other unfair labor practice charges filed against the hotel. Um, And so finally, in August, the NLRB's general counsel issued a complaint, and he asked for summary judgment in September, saying, hey, board, tell them to bargain, basically. Um, And the board agreed, and they said that there was no reason why the hotel shouldn't be bargaining with this officially elected union. So we're not talking about any particular uh, economic package that there's a disagreement or anything. We're talking about sitting down and talking. They're not even doing that. They're, and they're finding other, anything they can to avoid it. Um, so, so what do they have to do now that they, they have been found uh, guilty of violating labor law? 
So now the board has said to the hotel, you have to bargain, you have to come to the table, recognize the union first of all, because the, the hotel has not even recognized that the union is valid mm -hmm. um, and they've contested the election. Um, but the board has said, no, this is good to go. You have to bargain. Um, you have to come to the table. And the board also said that the hotel had to um, post a notice to its employees that it had violated the law. Gee, did, did, uh, did they say the election was rigged? Yes, yeah, so that's actually an interesting, funny you should bring it up. Um, the union kind of took over that language. They said in a statement yesterday that they keep telling Trump that their election was not rigged and pointing to his own language that he's been saying, you know, he's been saying if he loses the election, it's rigged. And yeah. they're saying, well, this election was not rigged, so you have to kind of play by the rules. So there's no question that uh, Trump is a is an owner and a and a major policymaker in this hotel, right? Yeah, so Trump owns the hotel. He owns it with Philip Ruffin, um, who is a kind of a casino magnet out there in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So the company is technically the Trump Ruffin International, or excuse me, Trump Ruffin LLC, I believe. Um, and they own the Trump International Hotel. So it appears that uh, the Donald, uh, while uh, saying that he's standing for work, working folks and is going to bring jobs to America, is uh, doing his best to try to make sure that he doesn't have to talk with his workers at his hotel in Las Vegas about how to make it a good job for, for them. Well, the union, yeah, the union certainly thinks so, and they have um, kind of used the election to bring attention to this issue, and they've uh, staged a lot of protests and picketing outside not just the Las Vegas Hotel, but also other properties, um, the golf course in Los Angeles. And they initiated a property-wide boycott of Donald Trump's properties. Um, so, And the AFL-CIO got behind that as well, and they boycotted. Um, they've been boycotting a bunch of things, telling people, you know, don't go to these restaurants, don't go to these hotels, don't stay here. Um, and they had a big uh, protest outside Trump's hotel here in Washington, D.C. They had a grand opening for that. Um, I believe it was last week, and there was a huge protest there. So, so the union's down to the, wire. <laughs> uh, the union's not not going to let this hypocrisy um, at least affect their members, and are, are, are their members are speaking out. Um, I, I note in the article that there was a a, a reference to a AFL-CIO internal polling about how yeah. union members are are viewing the the race. Yes, yes. So there was some internal polling from the AFL-CIO last week that said that Trump's um, favorability with union members in a few key swing states, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, has dropped. In June, he was at 41 percent with voters in those states, union voters in those states, um, and he dropped to 33 percent last week. Um, there was also a CBS News poll, I think it was yesterday, um, that said that overall households with a union member back Hillary Clinton over Trump, 53 to 35. Uh, so it, it's really important to understand that um, workers who have taken the action to organize and to speak for themselves through their unions with their employers are recognizing uh, someone nationally in an election who they feel can help them as opposed to someone who can talk a good line and maybe, in my opinion, sell some snake oil to them about uh, uh, jobs and help, but actually can't demonstrate that, that he's really helped uh, what, uh, workers and what they need. Uh, one example, I guess, would be the fact that the Trump hotels uh, appear to be are built with uh, imported steel from China and 
while the candidate rails about uh, issues of, of unfair trade, certainly his businesses are taking advantage of that, and, and it's, not, it's not hurting him one bit. So, uh, That's something that unions have brought up, too, the steel issue, um, especially, obviously, the United Steel Workers. Um, and there have been a lot of things that unions have brought up kind of pointing to his history with working people. Well, uh, Kogan, we really appreciate your uh, your research on this matter, uh, and it it is an important reminder four days out from the election that that working people have have a lot at stake, and this decision one way or the other could really affect their economic lives for years to come. Definitely. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me. I- Loved being on the show. Yes, and how can people uh, learn more about Politico and, and stay up with uh, all the issues that you're looking at and researching? Um, they can go to www.politico.com. Um, we also, on the labor reporting team, we have a newsletter that goes out every morning about kind of the top labor news. It's called Morning Shift, um, and people can sign up for that. Um, if they want to get an email to them, of a version of it goes out at 10 a.m. every day, and they can sign up for that on the Politico website as well. Oh, great opportunity to, to learn more about the minute-to-minute uh, developments in, in D.C. Uh, Kogan, thank you very much. Uh, we look forward to talking with you again, and uh, we'll check in on what's going on with Politico as, as we speak, and we'll check, we'll check in on your website. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Talk to you soon. This is John Hare, and you've been listening to the Union Edge Labor's Talk Radio. Okay, that was the Union Edge, and uh, not we're going to have to dig deep here. This is a labor notes. I'm going to read a statement here by labor notes. This is not a drill. Bracing for the Trump era. I'm going to turn this background music down a little. Uh, Donald Trump's win is a gut punch finale to a surreal election season. The outcome is even more bitter after the inspiration and energy stirred up by Bernie Sanders. We don't need a crystal ball to figure out what a Trump presidency has in store for labor. We just heard that Trump's hotel, uh, the managers of Trump's hotel are refusing to even even converse with uh, unions in in. Um, so this is Trump he's a businessman of course he doesn't like unions he made a statement that he loves right to work because he said it's cheaper and it's simpler national right to work legislation outsourcing and privatizing more public services large scale deportations a ban on prevailing wage laws if you drive past uh Saramonte Shopping Center. There's uh, an informational picket going on there about a developer who pays prevailing wage himself but will not require his contractors to pay prevailing wage on jobs outside of his 
his own job. He says he can't do anything about that. I talked to him on the phone. Of course, he could do something about it. He doesn't want to. He, why should he? <laughs> um, near the top of Labor's to-do list in preparing for the, is preparing for the real possibility that the whole country might be right to work before the snow melts. As we've written before, such a law isn't a death sentence. Unions have survived, even thrived in right-to-work states. But as we saw in Indiana, Wisconsin, and Michigan, decades of business-as-usual unionism have left most of our movement ill-prepared. <clears throat> the Friedrichs case against CTA, which would have required open shops in the public sector, was a dry run and a painful reminder that most unions don't realize what it's going to take to survive an open shop America. Many put their heads in the sand. Those that tried to prepare for Friedrichs usually assumed that all that was needed was a better explanation of the union advantage, together with high-tech mechanisms to sign up members and collect dues. Few asked the deeper question. What inspires people to organize a union in the first place? What's needed is not a better sales pitch, but getting back to basics. Members will stick with a union that's visible and vocal in the workplace, one that uses collective action as a shield and a stick against management abuse. For too long, unions have treated members as an ATM for free to earn predetermined priorities or an unruly nuisance that needs to get on program. This democracy deficit explains why so many members feel disconnected and why so many are likely to vote with their feet under right to work. Again, we went through it. 51% of voters in union households voted for Hillary Clinton, the lowest percentage for a Democratic nominee since 1980. The numbers were even worse in white working class communities across the Midwest, where over the last 15 years, millions of factory jobs have disappeared. 35%, as we just heard, 51% voted for Clinton. 35 for Trump. <laughs> Millions embrace Bernie Sanders' argument that the devastation in working-class communities stems from unchecked corporate greed and a government that's bought and paid for by bankers and billionaires. The union must support the right of immigrants to stay here. We need to extend such contract protections everywhere, including workplaces with no immigrant workers, such as a declaration of solidarity and an organizing opportunity. The same goes for ensuring Muslim workers' right to religious expression. The issue that laid the foundation for the very first Fight for $15 campaign, the one at the Seattle airport, which kicked off 
a national movement. All right, read it, read it yourself. It's at uh, Labor Notes, and the footnote here is: It's labor's job to trumpet an ambitious vision of what our society could belong, could be, long after the election cycle winds down. If not now, when? Okay. That's just some reflection there from uh, Labor Notes. Check it out. See what you think of it. We're celebrating a uh, major anniversary today. Um, let's play a couple of songs here. I'm going to look for Mose Allison, but Mose. Here's Tracy Chapman singing a great song by a Nobel Prize winner. Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown Accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing Come writers and critics, you prophesize with your pen Keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in span And there's no telling who that it's naming And the loser now will be led to win For the times, they are changing Come senators and congressmen the call. Don't stand in the doorways, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. There's a battle outside and it's raging. You just soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times, they are a change. Come, mother. And fathers throughout the land Don't criticize what you can't understand Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command Your old road is rapidly aging Please get out of the new one if you can lend your hand For the times, they are changing It is cast Slow one now Will later be past As a present now Will later be past Your old road is rapidly fading And the first one now Will later be last For the times They are changing
que cantaré porque somos chicanos Porque somos chicanos de Isteley Ay, arriba y arriba Ay, arriba y arriba y arriba iré Yo no creo en fronteras Yo no creo en fronteras Yo cruzaré, yo cruzaré, yo cruzaré
Okay, that was uh, Las Cafeteras with their stirring version of La Bamba, the, uh, how we might say, the Chicano version of uh, La Bamba. And before that, we had Tracy Chapman singing uh, Dylan's Times They Are Changing. And the times they are changing, but we need to take control of that change in our lives. We always do a, a This Day in Labor History, and this one is especially compelling. November 22nd, 1909. Approximately 20,000 garment workers in New York City went on strike against the horrendous conditions of the workshops. The strike known as the Uprising of 20,000 was the largest strike led by women in American history to that time. These were Jewish and Italian women, immigrant women, a lot of them young in their teens and 20s. Half of them were less than 20 years old. The conditions, well, work week started at 65 hours and could reach 75. The work was not stable. If orders were down, workers could be laid off at any time. Depending on their job and experience, these women could earn anywhere from 3 to $10 a week, which were poverty wages. They were required to supply their own materials, such as needles, and they could have their pay docked for the slightest infraction. Factory owners tried to control their workers' movements, including locking doors so they could not sneak outside for break, breaks and requiring permission to use the usually quite unsanitary bathroom. A strong Jewish community in New York And as I said, a lot of these women were Jewish women, so it became part of the community, this resistance. And uh, they went on strike after uh, one of their leaders, Clara Lemlich, stood up and spoke to the workers in Yiddish. I am a working girl, one of those who are on strike against intolerable conditions. I am tired of listening to strikers who talk in general terms. What we are here to decide is whether we shall or shall not strike. I offer a resolution that a general strike be declared now. This is what the angry workers wanted to hear. They pledged to support the strike, which began the next day. Over 700 women were arrested in the next month. 19 were sentenced to a workhouse. Clara Lemlich herself suffered six broken ribs through an act of police brutality and was arrested 17 times. A 10-year-old girl was arrested and sentenced to the workforce for assaulting a scab. Public opinion began to turn against the owners and... The women strikers were joined by wealthy and upper-class reformers who sympathized with them. 
Wealthy women began joining workers on the picket lines and bailing the arrested women out of jail. Among them were future Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins. So the owners had to negotiate with the workers. The workers wanted to hold the line at getting the union shop, but after 11 weeks without work, they agreed. Only about 1,000 of the other 20,000 were still on picket lines, succumbing to the greatest enemy of the strike, poverty. That said, the manufacturers did agree to some real concessions that were made by the strike that made the strike worthwhile, including a 52-hour week, four paid holidays a year, the end of having to buy one's own work materials, and a general agreement to negotiate pay rates with workers. They also agreed not to discriminate against union members, but this was totally unenforceable, and many leaders were blacklisted. Local 25 exploded from 100 members to 10,000. On the other hand, conditions of work did not improve much at all. Something that would the nation would discover two years at Triangle. So Triangle was one of the factories that did not sign on to this agreement. And... Uh, There was a the horrendous fire where hundreds of women died jumping out the air and hitting the earth, you know. One writer called looked like angels coming out of heaven and hitting the earth. The revolt of the twenty thousand. Right, let's see, I think we got Mose Allison finally. Wanted to pay tribute to Mose Allison who died just last week, actually. Mose Allison. Mo's coming right up. Allison was born in Mississippi and uh, picked cotton, went through the working class experience. Played music. I 
Everybody's talking about the seventh sun In the whole round world there is only one And I'm the one Yes, I'm the one I'm the one, I'm the one The one they call the seventh sun I can tell your future it will come to pass I can do things for you, make your heart feel glad Look in the sky, predict the rain I can tell when a woman's got another man I'm the one Yes, I'm the one I'm the one, I'm the one The one they call the seventh son sweet they will even make your little heart skip a beat i can heal the sick raise the dead and make the little girls talk out of their head i'm the one yes i'm the one i'm the one i'm the one the one they call the seven sun i'm the one the one they call the seven sun Rose Allison there with uh, I'm the One. I'm the one they call the seventh son. Rose Allison who died last week at uh, 90 years of age, I believe. Maybe 80. A long time. Uh, if you don't know his work, get to know it. He had his own approach to traditional forms like the blues. He played like a jazz piano, but it was overlaid uh, with traditional musical forms and uh, his lyrics his lyrics are excellent check them out Mose Allison here's someone else we lost in the music world Leon Russell
Don't say I never warned you when your train gets lost. Leon Russell playing Bob Dylan there. And uh, always you're going to be told just shut up and work or shut up and do what you're told. Here's the Edgar Winters group with a little protest against that. Don't you know that I was sitting back in Texas? Ha! I was playing the rhythm and blues. And then I got a big offer for more money than I get it together. to make your acquaintance if you haven't heard us before if you have welcome back this is the labor and love show and you can get our uh, podcast on itunes type in labor and love and there'll be a whole list of them we've been doing this show for several years now Show where we tell you how it is. And as a, a general manager, I'm Democrats did not pick up on and so lost the election was workers who are too old to work. What do they do? What is, what's going to happen to them? Will they have social security? Will they have pensions? This is Joe Glazer. help here. I'm not getting any help from our sound system here. Joe Glazer. When you work a time through, you don't want charity. You'd like to retire with some dignity. And you're too old. 
Well, we're kind of getting betrayed by our equipment here. Nothing wants to play. Let's try it again. Joe Glazer. You work hard for a little until you get old. And sometimes they push you right out of the boat. When you're working... Okay, my apologies. Looks like we're we're being uh, undermined here. Too old to work, Joe Glazer. Let's hear it. And you too old to work. Well, it's not going to happen. Maybe we can get it up for you uh, on some other venue. This is the B, and this is Labor and Love. Take a little break. couldn't hear it. Playing that Don't rock you and know roll. That I was
Playing that rock and roll. Just shut up and play music. Just shut up and go to work. Just shut up and do what you're told. <clears throat> About 11.46 now. Um, it's about time for me to get out of here and let my buddy Scott Walker with flat black plastic come your way. Uh. I want to read the biography, given the death of Fidel, uh, which we covered pretty thoroughly. I want to read about one of his comrades, a woman named Jade Santa Maria Cuadrado. She was born on a sugar plantation, as was Fidel. Fidel's dad owned the plantation, though. One of five children born to small-time landowners, she moved to Hawaii, to Havana and got involved in the growing movement against the corruption of the Batista dictatorship. In 1953, she was one of two women who participated in the assault headed by Fidel Castro on the Moncada garrison. 120 rebels attempted to take Moncada with the objective of securing the weapons kept there. Two-thirds of the insurgents were killed, including her brother Abel and lover Boris. During the capture and torture by the Batista regime, she was imprisoned and tortured. The guards brought her the bleeding eye of her brother and threatened to tear out his other eye, but she replied, if you tore an eye and he did not speak, neither will I. She was finally released and smuggled out of prison. She joined Castro and Che Guevara's guerrilla fighters in the Sierra Maestra mountains. Following the victory of the revolution on New Year's Day in 1959, Aide founded a cultural institution called La Casa de las Americas. And <clears throat> he provided intellectual and physical refuge for artists and writers in exile 
from Latin American dictatorships. She died in 1980, result of a near fatal car accident, and she suicided herself some months later. And she wrote, There's a moment when all things can be beautiful, heroic. That moment when life defies death and defeat because no one holds on to it, because it's so important not to lose it. At such a moment, one risks everything to preserve what really counts. <clears throat> life and death can be beautiful and noble when you fight for your life, but also when you give it up without compromise. All I wanted. To show our young Cubans is that life is more beautiful when you live that way. It's the only way to live. Aide Santa Maria Cuadrado, a sister in the Cuban Revolution. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, other workers, I want to wish you good week and good work. Remember, when one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, another person. Work for a dollar they didn't get. Remember too that if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, you're probably on the menu. And never, but never, let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. Are you tired of sweat?
Are you tired of sw- 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 Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground Comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for me five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Want to go to Burning Man, but you don't have the right goggles, costume, or attitude? Visit 20 Mission Hive at 2415 Mission Street between 20th and 21st in the heart of the Mission District. Easily accessible by BART, this collective of unique artists and vendors has eclectic handmade clothing, leatherwork, artisan jewelry, antiques, crystals, and there's even an amazing florist. 
whisper pirate ship to your 20 mission high vendor for a special 10% discount on the coolest, most original items in San Francisco. That's 20 mission hive with eight vendors and like them on Facebook at 20 mission hive, 20 mission high for awesome events and updates. The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds. an underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, 